Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. For many people, the word mysticism doesn't necessarily conjure associations with Christianity. Mysticism is often more so connected to non-Abrahamic traditions, perhaps Hinduism or Buddhism, uh, different forms of Western or non-Western esotericism, or perhaps modern phenomena such as crystals, astral projection, and the so-called New Age movement. But in fact, it is within Christianity that the very term mysticism actually emerges, and so is kind of the least problematic place to use this phrase. Uh, you know, we often talk about how the word mysticism can become an issue, it can become problematic in different ways when applying it to uh, traditions like Islam and, and Judaism for various reasons. This is not as true of Christianity, since the term basically uh, developed as a way to explain a particular aspect of Christianity throughout history. Still, even within Christianity, the word mysticism is often thrown around by different people, which creates more confusion than, than anything else. Uh, but what actually is Christian mysticism? Where does this term come from? And what is this vast and fascinating tradition that the term is referring to? Uh... 
Mysticism in Christianity is obviously a very big topic to tackle, which includes and interacts with some of the most major developments and figures in Christian history, from the church fathers and monasticism to the core theology of the Eastern Orthodox churches, medieval figures like Meister Eckhart, Hildegard, uh, Mechthild of Magdeburg, uh, even later Protestant thinkers like Jakob Burma, and all the way until the contemporary age and its different developments. But before we get into all of those particular subjects, we need to take a step back first. What do we actually mean when we say mysticism? And what kind of mysticism counts as Christian? Mysticism is a notoriously difficult term to talk about and to define, because everyone seems to have slightly different parameters through which they understand it. When used today, mysticism is often construed as a kind of overarching category. There is such a thing as mystical or mysticism that can be applied to different traditions or religions. There is Christian mysticism, Islamic mysticism, Jewish mysticism, Hindu mysticism, etc. And in all this, despite religious differences, there seems to be something that all these quote-unquote mysticisms have in common, which makes them precisely that, mysticism. Now, I'm not saying that this is actually true, only that this is the way that the word is often used and the assumptions that many people have as a result. We often point to particular aspects of all these different religions that they have in common as being the mysticism in question. But what is this quote-unquote mysticism? This is where things get a little difficult. In his classic work, The Varieties of Religious Experience, William James defines mysticism as pertaining in particular to experience. Mysticism is defined as individuals having mystical experiences, often involving an encounter with the absolute and an absorption into the absolute. But to many today, this appears a bit too narrow. Surely, when people talk about mysticism, they also refer to specific uh, expressions or ideas expressed in accounts or written texts, as well as practices that relate to these experiences and ideas. If we accept this idea of mysticism as a legitimate category, it seems that what all these supposed mysticisms have in common are ideas about transcendence, that we can transcend our regular human consciousness and encounter the absolute or God. That we can, indeed, somehow even unite with God. This is often the peak experience which mystical practice aims to induce, and mystical theologies or ideas try to theorize about. But as always, all of these terms can become an issue. What do we mean by experience to begin with? Is this the same as visions, for instance, or is it something else? Furthermore, many of the most prominent quote-unquote mystics of the Christian tradition, such as Meister Eckhart, often reject mystical experiences as totally useless. And what's more, what is meant by union with God? We see this concept and term used by many Christian mystics in history, but it can mean very different things depending on who is talking. In light of all this, the leading scholar of Christian mysticism today, Bernard McGinn, suggests another definition or emphasis for what mysticism entails in the Christian context. He says, quote, Thus we can say that the mystical element in Christianity is that part of its belief and practices that concerns the preparation for, the consciousness of, and the reaction to what can be described as the immediate or direct presence of God. 
Here, he chooses the term consciousness rather than experience, and rather than talking about union, which seems too narrow given the different ways that it can be understood, he chooses the broader term of God's presence as the unifying factor in mysticism, which I also feel is a rather wise choice. So that will be our working definition for this episode, which of course opens up to an absolutely enormous topic and subject nonetheless, which we can only cover very briefly or, or on, a, on a surface level in such a short episode as this. There is also the important fact that mysticism, although not necessarily mystical, as we will see, is a relatively recent term, especially the way it is understood as a kind of category of its own. Most quote-unquote mystics would never have considered themselves mystics, because that wasn't even a category that could be identified with. McGinn writes, quote, No mystics, at least before the present century, believed in or practiced mysticism. They believed in and practiced Christianity, or Judaism, or Islam, or Hinduism, that is, religions that contained mystical elements as part of a wider historical whole. These elements, which involve both beliefs and practices, can be more or less important to the wider body of believers. They also can be present in various degrees of intensity and development. When they reach a level of fully explicit formulation and paramount importance for certain adherents of the religion, I would argue that we can speak of mysticism proper, though even then, mysticism is inseparable from the larger whole. So just like when we talk about the Sufis or Sufism as not being uh, distinct from Islam, so with Christian mysticism, the same is true, that it has simply been an aspect of the wider uh, theology, practice, and experience of Christianity. In any case, if we define mysticism in the way that we just have, where do we find such ideas in the Christian tradition? Well, basically right from the beginning, and arguably even before that. As we know, Christianity essentially grew out of Judaism, and in that earlier religion we already have features that could be deemed mystical. Many of the stories about the biblical prophets and their revelations from God take on a mystical character, such as the famous chariot vision of Ezekiel, or even the character of the, some of the Psalms, I would argue. Furthermore, the movement known as Apocalypticism, which emerged from the first few centuries BC, featured dramatic mystical visions and indeed works like the Book of Enoch. In other words, even by the time that Jesus himself is walking around in the Galilee preaching to fellow Jews, he is inheriting a tradition full of mystical expression. In a way, the very figure of Jesus and his mission, according to Christianity, is somewhat mystical in nature. God becomes present to human beings directly through Jesus. God literally walks the earth as a human being. But it is after the death of Jesus that the movement that would come to be known as Christianity develops by subsequent generations of followers. And as soon as we have writings by early Christians, we find traces of the mysticism which we have talked about. Paul's vision on the road to Damascus can certainly be considered a kind of mystical experience, and with some of the earliest church fathers, its expressions start to show up again. This is perhaps most clear in relatively controversial figures like Origen and Clement of Alexandria, whose philosophizing vision of Christianity included colorful descriptions and ideas about the relationship between God and the world but also in more widely accepted and foundational figures of Christian thought, such as Gregory of Nyssa and the so-called Cappadocians. Here, the topic of Neoplatonism becomes relevant, as it often does. Many of these early figures of Christianity were obviously highly familiar with and often took inspiration from the philosophical thought and ideas of the Hellenic peoples living around them. 
And at the time, the philosophical school of Neoplatonism was especially powerful and popular. A school, you could say, founded by the great Plotinus, who taught about the emanating outflow of all things from the so-called the One, and the goal of subsequent return from the world of multiplicity back to union with this One. Furthermore, another key heritage from Neoplatonism is its apophaticism. The idea that the Absolute, in this case the One, or later in later expressions perhaps God, can never be grasped or described in any way. It is completely beyond human understanding or language. I have dedicated several episodes to Neoplatonism in particular already, including one that deals specifically with Neoplatonism and its relationship with Christianity. So if you want to know about that topic more deeply, you should check out that video. And because that topic is so important for Christian mysticism, there will be some overlap here between this video and that earlier one. It is often argued that, in many ways, it is from Neoplatonism and Plotinus that much of the vocabulary or ways of expressing mysticism actually comes. The apophatic theology, the idea of emanation, and especially the theme of union with the absolute, which we define here broadly as presence, um, all comes from the Neoplatonists to a certain extent. And these themes are there in some of the earliest church fathers. In particular, there is often talk in these early writings about contemplation, or theoria in Greek. Uh, so contemplation of God, such as, for example, in the powerful experience described by Origen. Quote, For the eyes of the mind are lifted up from their preoccupation with earthly things and from their being filled with the impression of material things. And they are so exalted that they peer beyond the created order and arrive at the sheer contemplation of God and at conversing with him reverently and suitably as he listens. How would things so great fail to profit those eyes that gaze at the glory of the Lord with unveiled face and that are being changed into his likeness from glory to glory? For them they partake of some divine and intelligible radiance." The goal for the early church fathers, from these figures mentioned to people like Augustine and others, was this sense of intimacy with God. This is sometimes expressed through the language of union with God. In the early centuries, monasticism and ascetical practices became more and more popular. Especially as Christianity became more accepted in the Roman Empire, which meant that people didn't really become martyrs anymore, as a result of this there appeared new ways of being a martyr in a symbolic sense, by giving up one's body and life entirely for God. It is thus with the desert fathers and mothers, often said to have originated with Anthony the Great, that Christian monasticism becomes a prominent thing, as well as other forms of asceticism and renunciation in the Middle East and Mediterranean region. One would live a life of celibacy, fast, practice self-mortification of different sorts. Um, in the case of the Desert Fathers, they would go out and live alone in the deserts, in caves in the desert or in cloistered communities, focusing entirely on prayer and devotional practice. This development is very significant for Christian mysticism. With the Desert Fathers and Mothers, something was started. People who would go out into the wilderness and live as hermits, dedicating their whole lives to prayers and self-mortifications of different sorts, including, of course, the harsh climate itself. These extreme practices would lead, as they often do, to intense experiences of a mystical sort. And even though this asceticism eventually became less extreme with the establishment of uh, monasticism proper with its rules and communal living, it is in these environments that quote-unquote mysticism would really flourish. It's worth pointing out that for much of history, most of the mystics of Christianity were connected to monasticism in some way. 
And the ultimate achievement that was sought from all these practices, and which was intellectually described by some of the great scholars, was precisely this idea of union with God, of being entirely conscious of God's all-encompassing presence. The word that came to be used for this state or goal was theosis, which literally means becoming divine or becoming God, perhaps. This is well encapsulated in a famous saying attributed to both Athanasius and Gregory of Nazianzus that, quote, God became human so that we might become God. Through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, God opened up the possibility for humans to, quote-unquote, become God, or at least to become divine in some way. Now, this must be understood in a more nuanced way. Christianity is a monotheistic religion where the distinction between God and creation is greatly emphasized. When these figures talk about theosis, of uniting with God, this isn't meant in the direct sense of the human being becoming a god or deity, or that there is ever a complete identity between the two. Although we do find expressions of this more monistic sort later on in history, which we'll see. This union is described in different ways and seems to mean quite different things depending on who is talking, like we said, but generally it does mean some sort of participation in the divine life and a divinizing of the human being. And around the year 500, we get one of the most significant written expressions of mysticism in early Christianity with the figure Pseudo-Dionysius, or Dionysius the Areopagite who basically coins the term mystical in the sense that we use it in his famous short treatise Mystices Theologias, or The Mystical Theology. Dionysius lays out this quote-unquote mystical theology as one of apophaticism, the idea that we cannot make any positive statements about God, that he's completely beyond any description or the grasp of human minds. Significantly, Dionysius also talks about God or the Absolute as a total darkness or nothingness, a nothingness that resides in the depths of human consciousness. We can know God only through unknowing, through stripping away everything we know and everything we are into the complete darkness and nothingness at the core of our being, and only there can God be found. This is just like Moses who climbs Mount Sinai to speak with God, which Dionysius reads as a metaphor for Moses actually climbing the mountain of his own soul into increasing unknowing and nothingness until, quote, then the people stood at a distance while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Dionysius explains, quote, but then he, Moses, breaks free of them, away from what sees and is seen, and he plunges into the truly mysterious darkness of unknowing. Here, renouncing all that the mind may conceive, wrapped entirely in the intangible and the invisible, he belongs completely to him who is beyond everything. Here, being neither oneself nor someone else, one is supremely united to the completely unknown by an inactivity of all knowledge, and knows beyond the mind by knowing nothing. An important point to be made here is that this isn't just some abstraction or uh, theoretical philosophizing about this darkness of God and, and, and this apophaticism. It's also a kind of practical instruction, right? This apophaticism, this mystical theology is not just about uh, thinking about God. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's about not thinking. It's, it's, it's a kind of, uh, it's a way of, of, of the soul to, to reach God. Um, 
you know, many people today sometimes actually want to make a distinction between mystical theology on the one hand, which this would be an example of, and mysticism on the other hand. But this distinction, this distinction is really not very useful, especially in this case. The late prominent Orthodox scholar Callistos or Timothy Ware said, quote, In fact, many of those who used the apophatic approach saw it not just as a philosophical device for indicating God's utter transcendence, but also, and much more fundamentally, as a means of attaining union with him through prayer. All of these early developments would become core aspects of mystical Christianity for the rest of history. The ideas of theosis, and especially the expressions of someone like Dionysius, became especially prominent in the so-called Eastern Orthodox Church. But it's also become influential in Catholic and Western Christianity too. To many Christians, there was a way to reach an intimacy with God, to experience God's presence or even to be united to God, a way that involved not looking for God externally in the world, but internally by purifying the soul and traveling into that apophatic darkness at our core, where, paradoxically, the light of God can be experienced. As one translation of the Gospel of Luke seems to indicate, the kingdom of God is within you. Or, in the saying of the aforementioned Desert Father, Anthony the Great, who said that, quote, He who knows himself knows God. As we all know, over the centuries, the church would start to split apart due to uh, theological and authority-related um, differences, uh, which kind of reached its, its culmination in 1054 with the so-called Great Schism, uh, right, when Christianity was divided into the Western Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. And while mysticism has played an important role in both of these across history, it's often said that it played a more prominent role in the, at least in the mainstream aspect of the Eastern Orthodox Church, more so than in the Western Catholic Church, where things like um, scholasticism in the later Middle Ages sort of made mysticism less popular. And while there is some truth to this description and this, this division, it's also a lot more complicated than that. In Eastern Orthodoxy, there developed key practices like hesychasm, a meditative practice often involving the so-called Jesus prayer and certain movements of the body as a way to achieve mystical experiences, and the ideas of mystically-oriented theologians who defended hesychasm, such as Gregory Palamas, became part of the official Orthodox theology. The 20th century theologian Vladimir Lossky wrote, quote, The Eastern tradition has never made a sharp distinction between mysticism and theology, between personal experience of the divine mysteries and the dogma affirmed by the Church. There is, therefore, no Christian mysticism without theology, but above all, there is no theology without mysticism. In any case, while such goals and ambitions were present from the earliest periods of Christianity and arguably even before that, um, over the centuries, they developed more particular uh, practices and ideas um, that aim to, to induce these kinds of uh, mystical, um, again, using that word, but mystical experiences. And hesychasm is just one example of this. It is also in this period, in the later Middle Ages, that we start to see some of the most famous and profound examples of mystical literature being written, uh, which would become very significant and famous for the rest of history, uh, both written in you know, scholastic language, but also written in vernacular languages. As we said, many of these developments, particularly in the Middle Ages and in Western Christianity, are connected with monasticism and the monastic orders. 
Many of these are, of course, still alive and well today, such as the Benedictines, the Cistercians, and mendicant orders such as the Dominicans and Franciscans. Just like the Sufi orders in Islam, these Christian orders are communities of men and women that take a vow to be initiated, often involving living in celibacy, for example, and following a particular monastic rule associated with that order, or spiritual techniques and practices associated with the founding figures of a given community. So, the Franciscans follow the president of Francis of Assisi, and the Dominicans that of Saint Dominic, etc. Francis of Assisi is indeed one of the most important figures in the history of Christian mysticism, who instigated a new kind of mysticism that wasn't completely cut off from the world as earlier hermits had been, but rather living ascetically in the world and in service of other people, which would become the norm for many orders going forward. These monastic communities or, or orders involve both men and women, and indeed women are especially important for the history and development of Christian mysticism in particular. Some of the most famous and influential mystics were indeed women, whose reputation or writings have cemented them in history. Some of them were nuns, thus part of organized monastic orders, such as the German figure Hildegard of Bingen, probably one of the most fascinating figures of medieval Europe. She was a Benedictine nun and polymath of the 12th century who left a mark in many different fields. She founded monasteries herself, wrote books of theology, and had incredibly intense mystical visions, which she would describe in colorful and breathtaking ways in famous works like the Scivias. But on top of this, she was also a composer who wrote religious pieces of music that still survive and is played today. She was an artist who painted beautiful pieces that tried to visualize some of those visions she had, as well as even inventing a language of her own. Hildegard is an absolutely incredible figure and one of the most significant Christian mystics in history. But many of the most famous women were not connected to a monastic order per se, but practiced their Christianity in various different ways. In particular, one of the most significant developments from the 13th century in Northern Europe was the emergence of the so-called Beguines and Begards. In essence, these were lay orders, not directly connected to the church. The Beguines, who were the female side of it, would live together in communities similar to nuns, but they didn't take any formal vows and could technically leave and live a regular life anytime they wanted. This relative independence also allowed the Beguines to express their spirituality in unique and very interesting ways. From these Beguine communities, we get some of the most fascinating Christian mystics, such as Mechthild of Magdeburg, Hadevish, and maybe Marguerite Poret, although the later's actual connection to the Beguines is somewhat uncertain. The writings of these women are important not only for being some of the earliest examples of vernacular mystical writings in Christian Europe, but also for the intimate and striking ways that they describe the consciousness of God's presence and union that they experienced. One of the most prominent themes or aspects here, and again there are parallels with the episode on Sufism, is of course love. When you read these mystics, especially those often referred to as affective mystics, you will quickly realize how the language of love and longing is one of the key ways that they talk about the relationship with God. In the Begin writers like Mechthild and Hadevish, this is very apparent, and it even takes on outright erotic imagery a lot of the time. 
Taking inspiration from courtly love literature, they describe their relationship with God as one of lover and beloved, God being portrayed as a man whose embrace they desperately long for, and the ultimate wish to reach that ecstatic union in the bridal chamber, which, as you can see, is sometimes portrayed symbolically as a sexual act. Just listen to how Hadavish describes this love. Quote, We see his mouth brought close to us to kiss him who wishes it. His arms are outstretched. The one who wishes to be embraced may throw oneself into them. Yes, to put it briefly, God has inclined himself toward us in time, in all we can have and wish to have from him, and all we can understand, as much as we wish and according to as we wish, in order that he may be with us in love and in fruition. Moreover, Mechtil describes in her famous work The Flowing Light of the Godhead a deeply erotic description of the mystical union. Quote, The bride of all delights goes to the fairest of lovers in the secret chamber of the invisible Godhead. There she finds the bed and the abode of love prepared by God in a manner beyond what is human. Our Lord speaks, Stay, lady soul. What do you bid me, Lord? Take off your clothes. Lady soul, you are so utterly formed to my nature that not the slightest thing can be between you and me. Then a blessed stillness that both desire comes over them. He surrenders himself to her, and she surrenders himself to him. What happens to her then, she knows, and that is fine with me. Love is the primary drive that leads you to God and his presence. And here hides some profound and significant metaphysical and epistemological cornerstones of Christian mysticism, and, in many ways, mysticism in general. While mystics don't necessarily neglect reason and philosophy per se, inherent in mysticism is often a clear demarcation of the limits of human reason. We can know certain things about the created world through reason, sure, but when it comes to God, things are different. We might be able to reason that God exists and that he is transcendent, etc., but ultimately God is so transcendent, in fact, that human reason is entirely incapable of knowing him fully. In other words, mysticism will often present alternate ways of knowing that has to take over once we cross over that boundary beyond which reason can never venture. This is that other kind of knowledge or insight that isn't reached by reason but by other mystical means. We saw a similar concept in Sufism with the idea of ma'arifa and vauq as a kind of mystical unveiling or tasting as opposed to reasoned conceptual knowledge. And we find very similar ideas in the Christian mystics as well. Indeed, just like the Sufis, Christian mystics will use the term and concept of love as a signifier for this meta-rational knowledge. It is only through love that we can truly reach and know God. And in the Begin mystics, this takes on pretty radical expressions. The love that is felt for God is painful. The longing throws the person into despair, and it is in that loving suffering that the goal is reached. Mirroring the suffering of Jesus on the cross, the mystics suffer for their love of God as that love becomes so strong that it completely annihilates the self of the person, and then only God is left. They have, in other words, reached that union, the unio mystica that we have talked about. Mechtild kind of echoes Meister Eckhart when she says, quote, No one is able or is permitted to receive this greeting unless one has gone beyond oneself and has become nothing. In this greeting, I want to die living. And Hadevich speaks very plainly as she exclaims, quote, I remained in passing away in my beloved, 
so that I wholly melted away in him and nothing any longer remained to me of myself. This theme of love as the impulse that leads to God and its relationship to reason becomes especially apparent in the writings of the French mystic Marguerite Poret. In her masterpiece, The Mirror of Simple Souls, she essentially presents a metaphorical dialogue between different characters. The soul, which is probably herself, love, and reason. This dynamic is at the core of the book. Love is clearly the source of ultimate wisdom to Marguerite and represents her own views and teachings. It isn't philosophical, rational arguments, but ineffable, mystical knowledge that is conveyed by love in this book. But Marguerite Poret was fully aware that what she was teaching through this character of love would be controversial. This is why the character of reason is so important. Reason will always jump in and criticize or question the statements made by love, obviously representing not only reason and its limitations in understanding the realities of mystical love, but also the critics and scholastics of the church at the time. And the conclusions that love, and thus Marguerite, comes to in the book are quite radical. Just like her German contemporaries, she essentially claims that the soul can become fully annihilated in God, so that nothing of the individual remains. In particular, this is expressed through the will. The individual will disappears so that her will is the will of God. Only God and his will remain, and the two are one in that sense. Quote, Reason says, Are you saying that the soul has no will at all? Love replies, Truly no, for everything that she wills by her consent is that which God wills that she would will. And this she wills so that the will of God may be accomplished, not at all her own will. And she cannot will this of herself, but it is the will of God that wills it in her. And so it is clear that this soul has no will at all that she has to will. The conclusions of these ideas became very controversial and actually led to Marguerite being burned at the stake in Paris in 1310, but the mirror of simple souls continued to be influential and popular, often under false authorship later on in history, and might have influenced thinkers like Meister Eckhart. So clearly, these women and their writings are very significant for the history of mysticism. But there were also, of course, men who had a similar outlook, even expressing themselves in a similar language of love and union. One such figure is the fascinating 12th century figure Bernard of Clairvaux, who, among other things, wrote a famous commentary on the Song of Solomon as the biblical book that best exemplifies the divine relationship of love, as well as being an important monastic reformer and even being involved in the very founding of the Knights Templar. Bernard also talks about the mystic path as essentially one of love. We purify all our worldly desires and passions so that only love of God remains, until we become so enveloped in this love that we become identified with love itself and achieve that highest state of union. Bernard is careful to point out that this highest state is temporary and will only be fully realized in the afterlife. He also seems to mean that it is simply the will that becomes united. The individual will becomes the will of God, just like in Marguerite Poret, and not that there is an annihilation of the entire self in God, as we seem to find more clearly in writers like Hadevich or Mechtild. This is actually a good example to show that problem that we raised in the beginning, that this idea of quote-unquote union can mean very different things, and thus become a less useful term. About a century before Bernard, the Eastern Church also saw one of its most influential and visionary mystics in Simeon the New Theologian. 
As we mentioned, the Eastern Church has often emphasized the Greek term theosis, or divinization, as the mystical goal. And this divinization, or union, is experienced and expressed by Simeon through his many intense visions of light. By turning inward in spiritual contemplation, just like Pseudo-Dionysius and others had pointed to earlier, he would have direct experiences of God's light in mystical union. Quote, At once I perceived a divine warmth, then a small radiance that shone forth, then a divine breath from his words, then a fire kindled in my heart, which caused constant streams of tears to flow. After that, a fine beam went through my mind more quickly than lightning. This is what a lot of Simeon's visions looked like, an experience of an all-encompassing immaterial light that envelops the person to where nothing else is seen or experienced. Jesus is the light of the world, the same light of God that was seen by the disciples on Mount Tabor. That light, at least potentially, is present within each and every one of us, and can be reached by contemplating ourselves and, to use the paradoxical language of Dionysius, diving into the darkness and nothingness where that light can be found. Quote, If he is light, therefore, but we say that those who are clothed with him do not perceive him, in what respect do we differ from a corpse? If he is the vine and we are the branches, unless we clearly show our union with him, we are soulless wood, fruitless and withered, matter which is fit for the unquenchable fire. Clearly, as we can see, these mystics reach these experiences through rigorous practice and ways of living. And while the Western Catholic Church developed its many monastic orders, this was not really the case in the East. The Eastern Orthodox Church does not have such orders, although monasticism itself is still very prominent. Although there have been monasteries and communities that have been very significant throughout history, such as um, St. Catherine Monastery in the Sinai Desert in Egypt, which has stood for a very long time since antiquity, and uh, Mount Athos in Greece, for example, which is basically an island entirely made up of monasteries and monks, and where a lot of very important developments took place, um, particularly when it comes to Eastern Orthodox mysticism, especially that tradition known as hesychasm, which we have mentioned before. The word hesychasm comes from the Greek term hesychia, which means something like inner stillness or uh, meanings related to things like solitude. And like we said, these were practices or techniques of prayer that we can broadly call meditative. Repetitive recitals of the Jesus prayer for long periods accompanied by certain postures and movements of the head and body. As already said, the purpose of these contemplative practices was to turn inward, to purify the soul of all external things, and to make that journey into the apophatic darkness beyond all understanding, where, again paradoxically, the light of God is experienced. God is not reached out there in the external world, but rather by turning to the inmost part of our own being. After all, as the account in Genesis says, all human beings were created in the image of God. This means that we all collectively have a divine part of ourselves which is accessible. Timothy Ware wrote, quote, Each of us is a living theology, and because we are God's icon, we can find God by looking within our own hearts, by returning within ourselves. The Hesychast practitioners claimed to reach theosis and union with God, where they would experience or see the light or even essence of God. This became quite controversial in the 14th century with the so-called Hesychast controversy, which, again, I have covered in a previous episode. But in the Western Church, there were, of course, other similar developments. 
For example, we see in the 14th century the composition of the fascinating mystical work called The Cloud of Unknowing, whose author is, fittingly, unknown, but would become very influential. The book is essentially a how-to manual for mystical practice and experience, talking about how the mystic focuses on specific phrases or words until one reaches a kind of stillness or silence inside, to the so-called cloud of forgetting, where we forget all about the outside world and our body, and eventually, when we go even further, we reach the titular cloud of unknowing, beyond all concepts and ideas, which of course is connected to the apophatic tradition associated with Dionysius and others. In the Cloud of Unknowing, we find many similarities with the Hesychast tradition in the East, but of course with its own unique ways of looking at things and with its own language and particularities. We have here so far talked about experiences, visions, and epistemologies. So how one can know God and reach this union with God and how these experiences have been expressed poetically and metaphorically. But there's also often talk about the idea or, or concept of a kind of mystical philosophy. Um, in other words, uh, that there's a kind of metaphysical outlook that is inherently mystical and that uh, both on an ontological and, and cosmological level explains all these phenomena. How is it that the light of God is experienced by the Hesychast? What is the nature of the so-called union with God? What, indeed, is the relationship between God and creation at all? Many had accused mystics and Hesychast of being pantheists, of saying that God and creation are identical. But was this true? We already saw a kind of philosophy like this with the Pseudo-Dionysius and his influence, who himself named it a so-called mystical theology. But such metaphysical speculation and systematizations became more pronounced and clear in the Middle Ages, partly in response to, or as a part of, the wider movement of scholasticism that dominated much of the church and the newly founded so-called universities. And for this development, there are few figures as interesting and famous in the Catholic West as the German mystic philosopher and theologian Meister Eckhart. A Dominican friar who taught at the University of Paris and had a rather high standing in the church, Eckhart became famous for his daring mystical ideas and his amazing and engaging sermons in the vernacular language of Middle High German. At the core of Eckhart's philosophy is a conception of God as the Grund, or ground. The Grund is God in his utmost essence, beyond even the persons of the Trinity. In this, we find echoes of the mystical theology of Pseudo-Dionysius, especially as Eckhart describes the ground as nothingness, or nicht in German. God, in his ground, is beyond thingness. He is nothing, or literally no thing. It's a total abyss, or abgrund in German, of no thingness. Even more significantly, what Eckhart proposes as the core of his mystical vision is the idea that there is only one ground. In other words, the ground of the soul at its deepest levels and the ground of God is one and the same ground, without distinction. Quote, It is not because either the soul is grounded in its essential reality or God in his, but because they are both grounded in the same ground in a fused identity that Eckhart and his followers found the language of the ground so rich in meaning. Our ultimate ground is God's ground, in other words, as is the ground of all of reality. Eckhart proposes that, ultimately, God is the only thing that is. Eckhart says, quote, Here God's ground is my ground, and my ground is God's ground. 
Indeed, one of the most recurring themes in Eckhart is that he identifies the essence of God with being itself, or more precisely, indistinct being, meaning that he doesn't have being in the sense that a creature or any thing has being or existence, he is pure being or existence itself, indistinctly. And because God is the sole possessor of this attribute, this means that when it comes to created things, they are absolutely nothing in themselves. Any being or existence that you or I have is really God's being, and thus identical to God himself, at least insofar as it is being. There is a certain distinction between created things, who are truly nothing, and God, who is being itself, but this also has the implication that God is all there is, and thus presents what we could call a certain kind of non-dualism. Eckhart says in a sermon that, quote, If my life is God's being, then God's existence must be my existence, and God's isness is my isness, neither less nor more. The world is both God and not God, both complete nothingness and at the same time fundamentally participates in the absolute indistinct being of God as the ground of reality. And he expresses this perhaps most profoundly in one of his most famous lines, in which he says, quote, The eye with which I see God is the same eye with which God sees me. On a theological level, Eckhart builds his system in really interesting ways to put into words the paradoxical statements about the ground and the world that we find in his sermons. And this system of his is decidedly Neoplatonic in nature, with the focus on usgank and ingank, going out and going back. In other words, everything is always flowing out from the ground and returning back to it. He describes God as being in a process of bulitio, a kind of inner boiling which creates the trinity and which then eventually boils over ebulitio to create the rest of the world. And it is in the ingang, or return, that we find the keys to the mystical path that he proposes. Just like so many of his fellow mystics, Eckhart emphasizes that we are to penetrate back into God, to detach from the world of particularities and individualism and return back to our source. Eventually, the further we reach on this journey, even God himself unbecomes, as, quote, the mystic is not content to return to the God who acts, but effects a breaking through to the silent, unmoving Godhead. If we can completely detach from the created world and return inward to our inmost ground, where there is no distinction between my ground and God's ground, that is how union is achieved. Quote, you should completely sink away from your you-ness and flow into his his-ness, and your you and his his shall become one hour so totally that with him you eternally comprehend his unbecoming isness and his unnamed nothingness. This is a cutting off of all attachments to the world, including the ego self and its works. In a sense, it is to annihilate ourselves until there is nothing at all remaining. To Eckhart, detachment means to empty ourselves of creative things and return to the silent desert of the soul, which is endless. And it's only in this absolute abyss and emptiness of the soul that God shows himself. You must know that to be empty of all created things is to be full of God, and to be full of created things is to be empty of God. When one is detached completely from the created world, when we have become nothing and realize the unity of the ground. Quote, Eckhart's mystical way will be an invitation to the soul to give up the nothingness of its created self in order to become the divine nothing that is also all things. It's interesting to point out here that Eckhart really wasn't interested in experiences or visions at all. 
This is a good example to show that this idea of defining mysticism as being essentially uh, concerned with these things, with experiences of God or union with God and these things. Uh, because Eckhart, you know, few people would deny the fact that Eckhart was a mystic. I'm sure most of us would, um, to some degree at least, call Eckhart a mystic. But he was actually quite critical of mystical experiences, seeing them as essentially useless in a way. That's maybe some hyperbole, but he definitely was critical of experiences uh, and did not see this kind of experience as being the goal of, of the mystical path or of detachment in any stretch of the imagination. This was not what Eckhart was after, even though, you know, experiences maybe could give you a glimpse into to the reality of God and the ground. Uh, it was not the goal of the path whatsoever. What Eckhart sees as the full achievement of the mystic is not some vision or grand experience as such, but, quote, new ways of knowing and loving based on states of awareness in which God becomes present in our inner acts. Meister Eckhart is one of the most profound mystical thinkers in history, but he was also quite controversial, some of his statements even being considered heretical. But regardless, he would have a lasting influence on later thinkers in the Christian West, from his more immediate admirers and, and students like Henry Suso and Johannes Tauler, to later figures like Nicholas of Cusa, and even remaining an influence to many in the modern world. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, a contemporary and similarly systemizing figure is of course the great Gregory Palamas. He was a monk at the famous monastery at Mount Athos, who became a deciding factor in the aforementioned Hesychast controversy. For some context, some scholars had raised concerns over the Hesychast form of prayer, particularly the claim by its practitioners that they would uh, witness God or the light of God, um, to experience God in some way at the heights of their unity visions. God himself can never be witnessed, they argued, and many of the statements made by the Hesychast about unity and of God's presence seem to be dangerously close to pantheism. This is where Gregory Palamas comes in as the greatest defender of hesychasm and its mysticism. In treatises like the Triads for the Defense of Those Who Practice Sacred Quietude, known usually as the Triads, he formulated a distinction between God's essence on the one hand and his energies on the other. Being a good apophatic Christian theologian, he totally and unequivocally considers the essence of God, in other words, God and his true absolute reality, as totally beyond all comprehension or experience. Quote, God is not a nature, for he is above all nature. He is not a being, for he is above all beings. No single thing of all that is created has or ever will have even the slightest communion with the supreme nature or nearness to it. However, when it comes to God's energies, the situation is different. The energies of God are the relationship of God to the created world. They are the ways that God, you could say, manifests himself in creation and through experience. Now, this is a very complex theological doctrine, of course, that requires a lot of study to fully grasp, but God's energies are not created things. They are uncreated and are, in some way, fully God himself, but in the way that he communicates himself to humans and to the world generally. It is these energies of God that are perceived. Quote, To say that the divine nature is communicable not in itself, but through its energy, is to remain within the bounds of right devotion. God, in his essence, is completely beyond all creation. He transcends it completely and cannot be experienced or conceived of. But in his energies, God is present everywhere his energies permeating all of the created world. Quote, All creation is a gigantic burning bush, 
permeated but not consumed by the ineffable and wondrous fire of God's energies. Unlike Eckhart, who was controversial in the Catholic Church, the doctrines of Palamas basically became an official part of Orthodox doctrine in the East, and remain so until today. He is thus one of the most significant theologians and mystics in Christian history. Needless to say, from the 14th century forward, mysticism continued to develop and appear in different places and guises. There are so many figures that there just isn't enough time to go through properly in an episode like this. From John of the Cross and his famous Dark Night of the Soul, uh, Teresa of Avila and her important role in the Counter-Reformation in Spain, uh, the English mystic Julian of Norwich and her ecstatic descriptions of unity with God, uh, there is Nicholas of Cusa, who expresses a unique yet kind of Eckhartian Neoplatonism in works like Unlearned Ignorance, and where he drops bombs like, quote, O Lord, when you look upon me with an eye of graciousness, what is your seeing other than your being seen by me? In seeing me, you who are Deus Abscondicus, the hidden God, give yourself to be seen by me. No one can see you except insofar as you grant that you be seen. To see you is not other than that you see the one who sees you. Kuza talks about God as the not-other, which leads him to give us gems of literary clarity such as, quote, Not other is not an other, nor is it other than any other, nor is it an other in another, for no other reason than that it is not other, which can in no way be other, as if something were lacking to it, as to an other. For an other which is other than something lacks that than which it is other. But not other, because it is not other than anything, does not lack anything, nor can anything be outside it. Anyway, like I said, there are so many gems of uh, mysticism in both the Catholic and, and Eastern Orthodox churches that are so fascinating and important for the history of the topic that we're discussing, and which we can maybe hopefully focus on more individually in dedicated later episodes. But another topic that, of course, should be brought up when we talk about the uh, history of Christianity and the history of, of mysticism Christianity is, of course, the Protestant Reformation. What did this development mean for Christian mysticism in general? Many will say that there is no such thing as Protestant mysticism, that the Reformation of people like Martin Luther completely did away with this aspect of Catholicism. But this is, of course, a bit of an over-exaggeration. To be sure, mysticism was significantly altered and changed as a result of the Reformation, but to say that it completely disappeared, that, or that there is no mysticism at all in Protestantism, is not very true. In fact, mystical writers influenced the early reformers themselves in some ways. Martin Luther read the works of Johannes Tauler, for instance, although he would significantly disagree with many of his ideas. But what happens with the Protestant Reformation is an abolishment of many features of Catholicism as it had stood for centuries before that point. The Protestants, for instance, abolished monasticism in a general sense. In other words, no more monks and nuns. And as we've seen, it was in these monastic environments that mysticism really had their center points for most of history. Luther's focus on faith as the only salvific factor for humans rendered all ascetic practices and even so-called experiences, kind of useless in a sense. But we shouldn't take this too far either. Remember how we define mysticism, the preparation for, consciousness of, and the response to the presence of God. Certainly within Protestantism we find several figures who have claimed to experience the presence of God in some way. 
just look at Pentecostalism and its emphasis on the Holy Spirit entering the person and phenomena like speaking in tongues. All of this could certainly be defined as a kind of mysticism, especially with our working definition today. What did change significantly with Protestantism, and of, of course mysticism had to change in the face of such significant theological and organizational differences, was their attitude to the central concept of union with God. All these claims that mystics throughout the centuries had made about being united with God, or the Dionysian and Eckhartian claims that God is somehow present in the depths of the human self and can be discovered there, these are the things that were rejected by the reformers completely. This is interesting because this means that if we define mysticism simply as the relationship to union with God, as many often do, then Protestantism certainly seems rather anti-mystical. But as we know, things are more complicated than that. The history of Protestant Christianity is full of all kinds of mystics, from Emmanuel Swedenborg to Jakob Burma and even certain aspects of the Quaker movements and other modern denominations, as we saw, can certainly have tendencies and aspects that are mystical in nature. The situation today is quite complex. The topic of Christian mysticism has become a topic of interest and inspiration for people in uh, Europe and, and America as an alternative to what is perceived as a more dry form of Christianity that many experienced growing up. At the same time, it has never stopped being a prominent feature of the religion. There are still monasteries that function in Europe, and the Eastern Orthodox Church has always upheld a strong connection to mysticism in its theology and practice. As we can see, it isn't something to be only associated with New Age movements and modern popular religion, but it's been a core aspect of Christian orthodoxy for much of history, a serious and often painful way of somehow reaching intimacy with God, of being conscious of his presence, however that presence is interpreted in a theological sense. From Gregory of Nyssa and Pseudo-Dionysius to Eckhart and the Beguines, Marguerite Poret and John of the Cross, the Christian mystics continue to be a source of fascination and inspiration to both practitioners, academics, and regular people alike. And they can, just like their peers from other religious traditions, show just how varied and colorful religions can actually be. I'll see you next time. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.